evening, everybody. Well, it's day one of the National Rail Strike and indeed the strike in London. Now, that said, 20% of trains are running. And my first observation is that this strike has had much less of an impact on our national life than it did back in 1989 and into the early 1990s. Why? Well, it's post-pandemic Britain. Lots of companies, lots of organisations have got used to the idea that people can work from home, albeit not, in my view, as efficiently. So, yes, whilst millions have been inconvenienced, the impact has not been that huge. And you know what? It's midsummer's day, the weather's nice, and quite a few people have simply just taken the day off. Second observation, some snap polling coming out this evening from a couple of companies, which shows actually there's quite a significant number of people in the population have great sympathy for the rail unions. And, of course, it's because everybody is feeling the pinch on the cost of living. Now, I asked the question last night, politically, who could these strikes hurt? And I thought back to the mid-'70s, when the trade union movement brought down Edward Heath's government. Arguably, ten years later, Mrs Thatcher, with her victory, kind of victory, against Arthur Scargill, she was emboldened by it. We know the Conservative Party position. They don't want to give in. They don't want to be seen to give in. They don't want Network Rail to give in, because they know if they give in to these unions, there'll be many, many more to come in the public sector, and perhaps, actually, that could lead on to the private sector. And wage inflation, once that disease of inflation has kicked in, wage inflation can worsen it and make it spiral. But what of the Labour Party? What of the opposition party? What of the party that was basically founded by the trade union movement, and interestingly, many of whose MPs are directly funded by the RMT? Well, Keir Starmer was pretty clear last night, issuing warnings, especially to front benches, not to join picket lines today. Well, let's have a look today around the country at what credibility Keir Starmer has with his own party and, indeed, I think, with the country. We'll start with Alex Sobel, Shadow Minister, Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and he was out joining a picket line on Tottenham Court Road. Uh, Navendu Mishra, Labour MP and, indeed, Whip for Stockport, said this treacherous government has underfunded, underfunded and mismanaged our public transport network for more than a decade. As a proud trade unionist, I stand with all workers on our railway network who are taking industrial action to fight for their jobs and keep passengers safe. Lloyd Russell Moyle, who was here in, on the set with me last night, said solidarity to RMT union workers this morning, joined them at Waterloo, then jumped on a hire bike to Victoria. Diane Abbott, well, of course, I thought she'd be there somewhere, Hackney North and Stoke Newington, and she says, on the RMT picket line at the Seven Sisters depot, brackets, but didn't tell Keir Starmer. And was Samwar, the leader of Scottish Labour, at Edinburgh Waverley Station. Solidarity with those on the picket lines. This is a crisis entirely of the government's making. The workers don't want strikes. The unions apparently don't want strikes. The public don't want strikes. They demand better. Dan Carden, Liverpool Walton, Zara Sultana, Coventry South, Rebecca Long-Bailey, Salford and Eccles, Richard Bergen, Leeds East. The list goes on and on and on. John McDonnell who, of course, former Shadow Chancellor, Member of Parliament for Hayes and Harlington, said, proud to join 
the RMT picket line this morning at West Rislip in my borough. Solidarity to the RMT union. Kate Osborne, Jarrow and PPS to Northern Ireland Secretary said on the picket line at Bromley, I'm a trade unionist, I will always stand on the side of the workers. Andy MacDonald, Middlesbrough, I'm proud to join the courageous RMT union rail workers on the picket line here in Middlesbrough. And a last minute surprise, out of retirement, the man himself, yes, King Arthur, Arthur Scargill joining the picket lines too. Well, perhaps that's not as big a surprise as we all thought. So Keir Starmer is not in control of his own party. The Labour opposition officially can't tell you whether they support these strikes or don't support these strikes. And given that this is day one of a national strike that could if people listen to the RMT's General Secretary Mitt Lynch lead on to a general strike, given how important and serious that is, the question tonight I'm asking, is the Labour Party today a credible opposition? Give me your thoughts, Farage at gbnews.uk. Now, GB News's Home Affairs Editor Mark White now gives us a summary of what's been going on around the country. At one of London's busiest train stations, it was anything but today. A largely empty concourse at Waterloo, indeed at stations right across the capital, as the vast majority of commuters clearly got the message that 80% of rail services are suspended. It took me half an hour longer than normal. Right. Um, had to go via Norwoods and then back into London Bridge. I get it, especially after COVID, like there's, there needs to be some job increases, there needs to be maybe a bit of a pay rise, but if everyone's working from home, there's no real impact. Like I said, my train wasn't busy, we just got stuck outside. At Birmingham New Street, passenger numbers there were a fraction of what would normally be seen on a weekday. This train to Northampton, one of a vastly reduced timetable of services to some key locations. In Scotland and Wales, the disruption has been even more severe. ScotRail say there are no services outside the central belt and only a handful of trains on the normally packed commuter services. It actually works out a bit better, the, the times they've put on today, but it's very frustrating, the train strikes. I was meant to be, I was going to go and work in the office, I still could, but I'll be honest, I'll, I'm just going to go and work from home instead of working in the office. At Cabinet, the Prime Minister warned the public they must be prepared for more disruption. And we need to get ready to, to stay the course, to stay the course, because these reforms, these improvements in the way we run our railways are in the interest of the travelling public. At Edinburgh's Waverley Station, the Scottish Labour leader Anna Sarwar defied Keir Stammer's edict that Labour politicians should not be seen with strikers on the picket line. Union bosses said the strike action was lawful and warned of further disruption. We've got the most draconian laws in Western Europe and in any democracy, in fact, anti-trade union laws. Whatever they bring in, we'll meet that challenge and we'll continue to campaign and, if necessary, we'll take effective industrial action when we need to. The Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury has urged the government to play a more active role in trying to bring about an end to the dispute. If ministers simply stand back and say this is the wedge issue of the week, this is the issue upon which we can divide the country this week instead of something else, 
That is a, a lack of responsibility. It's a dereliction of duty, and we need better than that from the government. Although many people opted to work from home today, others took to the roads for their daily commute. The M1 in County Durham, one of the routes busier than normal. With a tube strike in the capital adding to the misery, London buses have been busier than normal. The frustration obvious among those who weren't able to get on board. Large numbers of commuters, like me, opted for a taxi to work, although cab fares have been increased. With good weather forecast across the week, many others have taken the bike to work. The government says it's actively planning to change employment laws to allow for the likes of agency workers to step in in future disputes. But that won't help with this current set of strikes, which are expected to cause travel chaos across the entire week. Mark White, GB News. So we know exactly where the government stands. They're all for agency workers coming in to do some of these jobs, although I think in the case of Sickleman, for example, it would take many, many months to train people. But we know where the government stands on this. It's the Labour Party's position, but I'm keen to debate tonight. And joining me, Dennis McShane, former Member of Parliament for the Labour Party for Rotherham, and of course, Minister for Europe, going back just a few years, and an old adversary of mine on many fronts. And a friend, I hope so. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Dennis... You've got to say, this is the first day of these strikes, and none of us quite know where this will finish. We know, along with the rail unions, we've got postal workers, we've got many others, and, you know, we're old enough to remember the 70s, high rates of inflation, people seeing their living standards slip, and they're desperate not to fall backwards, and it's a very natural, normal, human emotion, which is almost why I think the snap opinion polls show a bit more support for the rail unions than perhaps many would have thought. But we have an opposition party led by Keir Starmer. If you believe the opinion polls, they're seven, eight, maybe nine points ahead of the Conservatives. And we face possibly a summer of discontent, rumblings even about a general strike. I doubt that will happen, but you never know. You know, Mick Lynch has sort of hinted he'd quite like to see one. So we need a credible opposition in this country. And I put it to you, as a Labour Party man, that Starmer's plea with his own party not to join picket lines, he's been made to look ridiculous today, hasn't he? I don't know. I actually arrived in from Italy at about two o'clock to Gatwick Airport, terrified I'd have to walk back to London from Gatwick. And I got within one minute of arriving a train to Victoria. And I actually think the point you were making earlier, that the country's adjusted to this rather well, yeah. is, 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 is the right approach. Uh, and that makes so much sense. Because the paradox of this strike is that it's a pure Margaret Thatcher strike in the sense that she passed a law saying you couldn't go on strike without a secret ballot and a majority. Well, nine out of ten RMT members voted in a, a ballot with a higher participation than it was that got Boris Johnson into, into power no, in 2013. I, Dennis, and, I get it. I and, get it. And, I get and, it. And, and I think, I mean, when I was an MP... The people who talked about railway problems all the time were Tory MPs from shire counties complaining that the ticket office was going to be closed or it wasn't open on a Sundays or there wasn't enough staff. And, of course, all of those demands from Tory MPs in isolated, more rural bits of Britain, costs money. 
And in every other, what strikes me coming just flying in as it happens from Italy on a very good railway system, no other country in Europe needs to go on strike. We have the worst transport minister in British and in European history. We can argue oh, that. No, yeah, no, listen, no, you but, can argue that, Mick. So why? Can argue no, no, that. no, but that's very important. But when, the point is, is, but the point is, the point is, it's all well and good to criticise, and we could criticise the price of railways and many other things that we could criticise, and I would perhaps agree with you on some of those things, but the question I'm asking is how is the leader of the Labour Party credible when he threatens potential disciplinary action and the leader of Scottish Labour, amongst others, goes and joins the RMT picket line? Where is Her Majesty's loyal opposition on this important People national People in the Labour Party are quite emotional about railway workers. I mean, they're not they're a bit like miners in the old days. Uh, and railway workers always have a hold. I mean, the RMT actually left the Labour Party, disaffiliated from the Labour Party, stopped giving any money to the Labour Party, supported you, Nigel. They were the biggest union to back Brexit. Yes, there we did. are. But, so, now, but now no, they're funding, no, no, funding no, Labour they, MPs. No, they're, they're but, but, some, but, but, but Dennis, okay. Dennis, we can we can talk about the railways, we can talk about the government, we can talk about the RMT and its history, its colourful history. You know, Bob Crow, the predecessor, was very colourful as well. We can talk about all that. Where is the Labour? What is the Labour Party's the Labour, policy? The Labour Party is. What is it? It is simply to say here we have. Britain's biggest combined transport problem in decades. We can't fly. Going out to Italy last week, it was a nightmare. We're held up. My daughter had a very important family reunion flight cancelled because Shaps will not intervene. John, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, says, nothing to do with me. I'm going off to Kiev. Oh, by the way, I'm having a general aesthetic mm. uh, for, my, for my nose problem. But, but I can go to a big posh ball to raise money That's for the Tory party. I'm not talking about no, Boris. I, know, but no, but I talk about Boris no, on this very you often. are, yeah, you're very, very, very sharp on it. But the point is, this is a prime minister utterly running away from the biggest responsibility a prime minister has, All which right. is to keep so Britain if moving. The prime minister's no cop. If Brant Shapps is no cop, I could vote Labour in the next election. But would I, I, I would I know what I'm voting for? And are they credible being led by Keir Starmer? For heaven's sake! I mean. Keir Starmer, any Labour leader, it's not very dramatic, he's got problems, but Keir Starmer is saying what any sensible leader would say. I can't affect, I can't force these fat cats paid huge salaries who run the railways to go and actually talk to the unions, mm -hmm. find some compromises, take it, they used to be right. ACAS, find some compromises, see how they manage to do it in Germany and other countries without having to go on strike. When you've got this, uh, sorry, a prime minister who only wants to divide the country, wants to bring back, he thinks, the glory days of <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, we're stuck, Nigel. Well, OK, Dennis McShane, but I still don't think it's that clear where the Labour Party stands. Earlier on, about an hour ago, Ian Duncan-Smith joined me in the studio. I asked him about the Conservative response to these strikes. Well, I think uh, the government is resolved not to cave in to the unions. Uh, this is a fight that's been coming for a little while. Uh, the trade unions have been threatening this. Um, I think they think, given what's been going on recently in Parliament, I think they think they can chance their arm because they think that the government's in a weak position. I personally think they've misjudged this completely because I think this will strengthen public opinion. public do not like this. They don't like their lives being interfered with in this regard. And for no reason at all, when you... I was listening to a radio programme earlier on today, this morning, and where we heard uh, the protagonists, and it's quite clear that the uh, rail unions are refusing to make the kind of productivity changes they should do. They're still working in outmoded practice that date back in many cases to the 1950s. 
Every other industry has long since moved on, but we are dealing with hardcore, real sort of socialists here who just want to break a government. Yeah, I, I think, think their Sunday rules about Sunday working go back to 1919. Oh, it's so, so it is outdated, and there are Spanish practices, all of which fascinates me. Mm. Why didn't Boris Johnson just invite Mick Lynch to come into Number 10 to get the moral higher ground and to, to, to suggest to Lynch and others that they had to move forward? Why not do that? Well, I think the, the view of the government is that this is a matter that needs to be settled by those who are responsible for running the network and those that are representatives of them. They say that they can do it, they should do it. If they step in, then immediately it makes it look like a significant crisis and the government's worried. The government's got to avoid looking like they are scared or panicky. But what the they have to say is do it. But the government's put £16 billion of taxpayers' money into this during the pandemic. Surely the government has a responsibility to intervene in some way. Well, the intervention is to say categorically to those running it, come up with changes that give you greater productivity and we're flexible on the amount of money that you can pay them, but it must come on the back of productivity. That's what they've agreed, and there's no reason why they should budge on that. The truth is the rail unions are hiding to nothing on this one because they've made no changes, they're rejecting all changes at the moment, and they're being completely obdurate. They believe that this way they will suck the government in to start doing beer and sandwiches, uh, as we remember Harold Wilson used to do, mm. with the unions. That's a mistake. That will simply encourage every other trade union to go, well, they've given way to this lot, then they'll give way to pressure. So the government's got to say... Right, so the no. government's going to be tough, it's going to stand Well, I think this comes out of the playbook of the uh, early uh, 1980s uh, uh, when Mrs Thatcher had to face down the unions. They are, they are not in that stage. They were much more powerful in those days. But the honest truth is they have to sort this out. Productivity is the key. There is extra salary available, but they've got to agree to do it. And if they don't, well, the government is simply going to say, well, given everything else, we can't go awarding you massive pay rises because everybody else that's, that's working hard will want them to, and we have to make sure that we can afford it. This Thursday is the sixth anniversary of the Brexit referendum, something that both you and I felt in our hearts was the right thing to do for the country. The Centre for Brexit Policy, you've released a report today basically saying <clears throat> that there's a problem with institutional Britain, there's a problem with the civil service, there's a problem with many people in senior ranks in British society. It's a defeatist mentality that's been there for years. Yes, the phrase, the, the word we use in the report, and it's written by a number of academics, historians, etc., so it's not just a political diatribe, it's a genuine look back over the last 300 years. And two points they make is, one is the problem we face today is what's called uh, a basically a, a limiting sense uh, to the way that civil servants think about their country. They think that this is all about managing decline. Uh, and it's what we call declinism, the idea that you think that all the UK is doing is going down, so the only thing you can do is cleave to others, the European Union, and somehow just manage this disparate problem that we go away. I, I, it's ironic in the UK, really, where many of those who are responsible in perpetual government, civil service and others that are, that are there, have this very low sense of the UK. So in a way, Brexit was a revolt by the unexalted ordinary public who said, we've never stopped believing in our country. We just wish everybody yes. else that's charged yes. oh, with running it look, would I mean, do I... the same. So this is really about how do we get those in charge to believe fundamentally the UK is in an incredibly good place and to make the changes that but come here's out of the, Brexit. But here's the point. 
I understand what you're saying, and I think sort of Suez was that big moment after Suez, you know, suddenly everything changed. And you're right, it is managed decline, and it's been that for decades and decades and decades. You know, your report also talks about the Whitehall blob, it talks about the woke mentality, it talks about real obstructionism, actually, you know, stopping, in, 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 in effect, ministers from doing things. But here's the point. You know, Mrs Thatcher famously said, advisers advise, ministers decide. Why do we not have a government, a prime minister, cabinet ministers who impose their will upon the civil service and tell them what to do on pain of being sacked? Well, I think the problem comes back to the beginning of this government when we hit the pandemic. I think it really, it really took a lot of the steam out of the government because so much was spent, so much was done during those two years. We lost two, two and a half years. You could argue that it's although we started this year for the first time, having just won the election. So the government has to have a sense of urgency about it because we don't have a lot of time. Mm. So you're right, there has been some obstructionism because lots of people didn't want Brexit. But I think the biggest thing that the government should take from this paper, it's that there is a necessity to lead. It's very important that the government sets out clearly that it intends to make the most of what happened back in 2016. Is it capable of doing well, that? I think it is capable of doing it. I published a report a year and a half ago on regulatory change. Huge report about how we, re you know, we come back to common And none of it's been law. done, Ian. Well, it, it's at last been given. It's been talked about. It, well, it's last been given and it's going to get a bill slot to do this, but it's got to be spread over bits and pieces. I'll give you one example. I mean, unless we can show those of us on our side of the argument, unless we can show the public clear, identifiable benefits of Brexit, then I can see, after the next election, a Labour, Lib Dem, SNP coalition getting us back aligned with a single market and would be Brexit in name only. Why not cut the 5% VAT <clears throat> on fuel? A clear, identifiable win that we couldn't do without Brexit. Why would this government not do it? Oh, I'd do it tomorrow. Uh, the only problem they have, of course, in Northern Ireland, because of the protocol which we are now going to legislate to change, arbitrarily if necessary, they can't introduce it in Northern Ireland because they've allowed that to be captured by the ECJ. But they should be doing it. I personally would make an even bolder cut to the whole process. Mm. The answer right now is, facing this uh, problem at the moment of cost of living, two elements that I would do straight away, and I think the government should be bold in doing this. One is to go to VAT and say, look, we promised you we would do it, and when we left, we're going to do it. Number yep. two, we're also going to cut taxes, because the taxes are too high, yeah. and, should and we... get them down. And that's a domestic it, issue, but that's what we should be doing. And while we're at it, you and I both know that one of the reasons, and you identified this on the night of the Brexit vote, the big turnouts on council estates all over the country, you were the first on this, and much of that was controlling our borders. People concerned about the levels of legal and illegal immigration. Has the time come to complete Brexit and leave the ECHR? Well, the first thing we have to have is we have to have a proper UK Bill of Rights that gives people access to their rights, but here in the UK, <coughs> judged by UK courts. That's the first thing. And then after that, we're, we should be in the position to be able to say, look, we will stick by what our basic human rights codes are, but we don't need to refer anything or get a referral back from the court uh, that is exactly the ECHR court. And therefore, we should be simply saying we can do it here in the UK. And that's a debate that we should have and settled and get that through. And I'm told now they're going to And be... you think we can do that well, and, and stay part of the ECHR? Yeah, well, I think we signed up to the ECHR. 
but I don't think we should actually accept their judgments from their court. <laughs> we may as well leave it then. Well, we're in a essence, we're creating our own version, which will be here run by UK judges. That's the key element that we have to do. And it's got to be bold. You know, we should be doing it. Yeah. Are, are we saying, as this nameless judge uh, from uh, deep in the bowels of the, of, the, of the Court of Rights, actually then overturned what mm. all the learned judges from the of our own court, Supreme, right court, Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, yeah. decided was okay and lawful. Are we saying that on a whim they were able to cancel yes. that? Yes, yes, we has are. This caused complete mayhem. Yes, that has to stop. So this is really a good opportunity for us right. to say, well, enough. We're going to bring that back. Final to the thought, UK. Ian Duncan Smith. Do you actually believe that the leadership of your party has got the guts to do these things? Well, I want them to do it, and I, I believe. Ask that. Well, I believe they can do it, and they should, and will do it. But the question is when. That's my question. Do it now. We should have a complete bonfire of the nonsenses that we left the EU over and get on with it. There are such rewards out there. I was talking the other day about setting up medical tech here as the hub for the rest of the world. Many of the scientists that didn't support Brexit have now realised in my report that I published that actually this opens the door to us mm, well, to set our own rates. Well, I, I, I Huge competition. I so understand, I understand all obvious. of these things. I understand all of these things. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Well, Ian Duncan Smith there trying to be optimistic, but I'll believe it when I see it. In a moment, face-to-face -face consultations rather than meeting GPs has reduced our carbon emissions. How pleased do you feel at home about that? Well, with the Labour Party all at sea over these strikes with no clearly identifiable policy and many, many going against the orders of the leader Keir Starmer and going out and joining picket lines, I asked you, are they a credible opposition? Some of your responses, Darrell says, are Labour even a credible political party? Well, the opinion polls say they are. Another viewer says no, which is why we have such a dreadful government. Without a proper opposition, they can do whatever they like. It's a fair point. We need opposition to make democracy work. One viewer says says, of course, the Labour Party isn't a credible opposition. Too many of their members stand for what would be harmful to the people of this country. How can we support that? Ryan throws in and says, no, I don't think they've announced a single policy yet. And Chris, I love this one. Chris says, reckless spending, failure to control immigration, British people at the bottom of the pile. Who needs Labour when the Tories are doing all of this anyway? I like that. That's very good. Now, over the weekend, there was an NHS Confederation Expo up in Liverpool, chaired by Polly Toynbee of The Guardian. And she said the remote GP consultations have saved enormous amounts of emissions. And yes, Dr Nick Watts, the NHS England's chief sustainability manager, whilst he did acknowledge that we need to do a better job at ensuring that those that want an in-person consultation can have one, boasted that the health service had cut its carbon emissions by 276 kilotons last year. And that, folks, is because you simply can't see a GP. And they seem to think that's a good thing in the same year that between India and China, they'll burn record amounts of coal. I think it's ridiculous. Let's get a view from Dr Wendy Denning, private general practitioner. Wendy, um, I ask you, given the... Given the public anger, given the public anger that I've met with out there, 
going around the country. You know, people want to see their GPs, and we've been doing the Farage at Large shows. It's one of the most common things we hear. Going around the country, people want to see their GPs to be told by the NHS, the NHS's boss of sustainability, that we've cut 276 kilotons of carbon. Haven't they got their priorities just a little bit twisted? Well, it depends how you view medicine. I went into medicine to heal people, to help people, to be available and to be a service to people. I'm, I'm an old generation. I believe that there's something that goes between a doctor and a patient on in, an, in a personal transaction that can't be done over Zoom. So I don't, I'm not prepared to see medicine dissolve into Zoom consultations. I think it misses a very fundamental point between the patient and, and doctor. Having said all that, if you're discussing results with a patient, if you're going over a treatment plan with a patient and you've already... We seem to have lost Wendy midstream which is a bit of a shame. Uh, we're going to try and get her back. Uh, we'll give it one moment. I'll tell you what we'll do while we're trying. Wendy, we're back with you. Yeah. So what I was saying was I think the person... Yeah. I think doing certain things on Zoom is fine. But the problem is when you're doing trying to do lots of different things on Zoom can't replace that personal connection. And I've had experience of it myself as a doctor with my own children where I felt that their care has been compromised by not being able to see my own GP. Yeah, I, Wendy, I agree with you. I'm sorry the line's rotten, but we'll come back and discuss this issue with you another time because I think the NHS have lost their marbles if they're claiming not seeing our GP has cut carbon emissions. Let's stick with the NHS just for a quick moment. The other week we talked about dentistry. If there are 6.5 million people waiting for NHS procedures, there are millions more than that that cannot get access to an NHS dentist. There is a campaign called Toothless. Mark Jones is its co-founder. He was inspired to do this in Suffolk when a town on the Suffolk coast finished up with no NHS dentist. Mark, bring us up to date, please with NHS dentistry, and, and are there any plans to improve what appears to be a pretty hopeless situation? Well, thank you, uh, Nigel, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to appear on your show. And uh, many of your viewers and listeners, of course, will have suffered horribly from their inability to get access to an NHS dentist. Uh, the situation, as you rightly point out, was last year here in Suffolk, a friend of mine rang me up and said, uh, look, I'm losing my dentist. That's two dentists, dental practices that have closed in Layston, which is adjacent to Sizewell Nuclear Power Station, uh, leaving around about 6,000 residents without uh, access to an NHS dentist. Now, we didn't realise at the time when we were campaigning to get a dentist back in Layston that this issue was the same everywhere across the country, in every community up and down the country, the same issue. And it's resulting in people pulling out their own teeth, literally pulling out their own teeth, 
drinking a bottle of scotch, heating a needle up a, on the gas burner to sterilise it in their kitchen and lance an abscess to relieve the pain and pressure. Uh, it's just horrific. It's Dickensian, Nigel. And our campaign is highlighting that. Um, and we are just grassroots. We're not funded by anyone. We're just doing this out of uh, in our spare time, raising the issue and raising it in, in uh, Westminster. We were on a panel today speaking on the Westminster Health Forum. And plans, uh, the NHS commissioners talk about and we've sat with them here in East of England, they repeatedly talk about strategy. But if the strategy is to run down the NHS dentistry, then they're doing a fantastic job of it. Well, Mark Jones, I want to say that was short and sweet, but very, very powerful, very, very important. It's the second time that I've covered dentistry in the course of the last few weeks. I'm going to do it again. I think there is a massive crisis with the nation's teeth and something needs to be done. And dentistry, the need for dentistry needs a bigger voice. Mark, thank you for joining me this evening. Just one very quick What the Farage moment this evening. Gary Lineker, yes, Gary Lineker, has said that he suffered pretty much racist abuse. I'm sorry. For his darkish skin when he was young, yes, the Match of a Day host said that despite being as English as they come, he experienced abuse at the hands of schoolmates because he had darker skin than some of the rest of them. Well, I know, Gary, that you're absolutely consumed by guilt in every way, but this is totally and utterly ridiculous. And it might be better if you just said a little less in the future. Today, it's the 40th birthday. The 40th birthday of Prince William. It's a couple of weeks after that magnificent Platinum Jubilee. And I'm going to be joined by Richard Fitzwilliams to talk about the monarchy. He studied it, he's written about it, he's spoken about it for many, many years. What is the future of our monarchy? Well, on this first day of the rail strikes, I think it's probably time we had a drink and Richard Fitzwilliams joins me on Talking Pints. Welcome to the show. Now, Richard, there's much we could talk about, your public relations work, your film critic work, many other things, but I want to talk about the royal family tonight. And I know you had a picture of the Queen beside your bed as you grew up. You clearly had very patriotic parents. Yes, you're absolutely right. They were staunch monarchists. This is the way to indoctrinate a child. And I rather loved it. There was the Queen. It was the early years, of course, of tripping the colour riding side saddle, a very romantic image, and I was fascinated by it. And I'm afraid I wasn't a rebellious youth, you see, so I... You were a conformist. I was a conformist. It's a well, terrible thing to say. Well, we're going to talk a lot about the Royal Family, but first, one of the many interesting things that you did was to be the editor of the International Who's Who, going back a bit. And whether it was the International Who's Who or the Who's Who in this country, I remember, I've still got at home in the library, you know, these great big fat volumes of... Because before the internet, it was actually quite difficult to find out about people. Oh, yes, it? I know. I mean, they're completely out of date now. I mean, they're very good museum pieces. You could drop the, the modern enemy from a great height. <laughs> yeah, well, There's always we that. We can't advocate violence on this show. Indeed <laughs> not, indeed not. But it was fascinating. There are 20,000 people throughout the world. And I was a populist editor, unlike, say, the British who's who. Because if you look, I mean, obviously, the, as a wonderful establishment guide, I would for a millisecond uh, dispute that. 
look at the arts coverage, look at, as you mentioned, I'm a film critic, look at the yeah. coverage of cinema, who's who is definitely positively prehistoric in some areas, but this was a completely international book, who's who is mainly British, though not entirely. Mm. And so you had 20,000 people, you could cut people out, the dead were removed, and you had about 750,000 uh, entries each year. And of course, I did the PR as well, so I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fascinating, and you kept up to date with current affairs, and it had a special section for reigning royal families throughout the Ah, well, there you are. Well, that brings us on very neatly. Now, you've been, a, you know, not just this um, bedside photograph, but you've obviously studied the royal family, you've written about the royal family, you've spoken and broadcast about the royal family. And today's a great day to talk about this. It is Prince William's 40th birthday, and he does appear to be a rather magnificent human being. I absolutely agree, and I think one of the signs, you know, they're doing fewer numerically, I mean, the Duke of Edinburgh was attached to, I think it was 837 uh, charities, institutions, and so that Charles Brandreth counted, and the Queen over 500. William and Catherine are concentrating on certain ones, on fewer, mental health, the environment, and homelessness, and we've seen this today, and of course, you know, with the big issue that he was, uh, was promoting. And they're doing a tremendous amount. This shows the royals have really got clout. Now, there was a lot linked to their trip to the Caribbean with the publicity, and I think it was, uh, it, there were some glitches. There were some bits of it were bad. The protests were very minor protests. The protests were very small. I mean, in reality, it was a Republican agenda that drove coverage of it, but there were certain mistakes, and I don't think you'll find any mistakes are made again, because what we're used to are royal tours being absolutely flawless. They weren't, or haven't been entirely. The, Queen, for example, in Quebec in the 1960s, in India in the 1990s, you may recall Robin yeah. Cook played a part yeah. in that. But, yeah. but I mean, basically, it's the best form of soft power that we could possibly have. And after and post Brexit, of course, as you, weigh, you see the royals going to Europe, the various European countries, the links with the Commonwealth. The Caribbean was unfortunate because there were a variety of movements there, and clearly not enough yeah. notice was taken about that. And I've noticed Chinese influence. You know, the Chinese lend money to Barbados and Barbados... And Barbados becomes a republic yeah. without a referendum. Now, yeah. there, that yeah. is the yeah. test, yeah. because if you look at the polls still, there is a danger here with the 18 to 24-year-old age group after Oprah, because so much damage was done by that one interview. Overall, I think republic support in Britain itself is in the 20s, something like that. So do you think William was right to use the speech? at the Platinum Jubilee on the Saturday evening. I mean, he, he, he went on about climate change and carbon emissions. It, it was quite political in a way. I wouldn't say that the environment is a political uh, topic. For example, the Duke of Edinburgh did a great deal about that, and the Queen mentioned it in her COP26 message, and as we know, Prince Charles, this has been his particular uh, oh, yes. passion. Oh, oh, uh, oh I, I know. Oh, yeah. I sat in 2007 in the European Parliament when he told us that the North Pole will be gone within seven years. Oh, I, I mean, I know exactly what he's been campaigning on. But there is a danger, isn't there, that, you, that, 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 that issues like this can become political? If issues like that do become political, then there certainly could be. Because after all, consider, I mean, the power the monarchy has, it's not so much that it's the power the monarchy denies to others, uh, the head of the civil service, the judiciary, the church, although that may not last, one doesn't know, and the armed forces. 
above party politics, symbolic of national unity. Queen in Scotland, I think, was a slightly different case because she took an oath for the coronation and the oath was to serve the United Kingdom. So unsurprisingly, there was that feeling, which indeed she expressed in I mean, it's, been, it's been an amazing 70 years. And if you look back through history, you know, there have been many times when kings and queens have been not that popular. You know, we sort of forget that because we've grown up during this, as, as, as Churchill deemed it to be, the new Elizabethan age, with huge support for the Queen, huge popularity. How much damage has Harry done to the monarchy? I think that he's done a lot of damage in the United States. I think he's done a lot of damage, he and Meghan, uh, here among the young at the moment anyway. I haven't seen polls that have yet disproved it. I think among the Scots and persons of colour and the 18 to 24 year olds, uh, there is uh, certainly, I would say, a creeping republicanism. However, I would also say that monarchy has lasted over a thousand years. It's had ups and downs. If you look at the 19th, 90s. If you could absolutely conceive, and by the way, we're going to be shown it because the Crown's fifth and sixth episodes, I'm afraid, are going to be dealing with it. 20 episodes. Do you like the Crown? You're talking about a Faustian pact I had with the first two series, with Claire Foy, who I thought was marvellous, and then you had series three and four with Olivia Colman, who I thought was absolutely terrible. She was snobby, she was snootish. I thought the, the monarchy appeared to be like a mafia, an extraordinarily bad-mannered gang as well. So I liked it initially. There were some brilliant production values. Peter Morgan knows what he's doing with the crowd, with the Queen, which was superb, with the audience, which was excellent yeah, on stage. Yeah. No, but the problem the problem is that in the 80, in the 90s, it was absolutely terrifying from mistake to mistake, the war of the whales is and so on. I can't conceive of anything quite like that happening. What I would like to see, and it makes sense on both sides, the palace don't want this constant sniping from the Sussexes, of course not. And you could but see they by got, But they've got a book coming out and a Netflix film coming out. I mean, they could do, there's worse to come, isn't there? There is undoubtedly potentially worse to come. But what impressed me during the Platinum Jubilee uh, celebrations, which you mentioned to begin with, the palace knew who they were dealing with. The Queen apparently saw Lilibet, her daughter, but there were no photographs taken yeah. at St Paul's. They were on the other side of the aisle, uh, seated with Eugenie and Beatrice, with whom they get on apparently. The point was that what would make sense would be some form of harmonious balance. I say this because the Sussex is, if they want to be philanthropists, it's not very good. I mean, apart from her mother, her whole family is against her, and so far as the royal family, apart from Princess Eugenie, there's intense distrust. And yeah. of course, William, as you say, is 40 today. Well, he obviously is deeply, deeply embittered by that interview and some of the subsequent comments. And what is written in a book if that book's to be serialized, if it comes out, what I'd like to see is the book postponed. I'd like to see basically peace, a harmonious, if they want. They want the money. They might very well want the money, but of course there's Biden's sister suggesting that she could be a future president. I'd love to see how <laughs> Americans respond to the Duchess I'd of love Sussex. To see it. I'd love to see her, run, her running against Trump. I'd love to see that. I would really enjoy that. A final thought, but a lengthy one. At some point, and we hope it's a long way off, but at some point the Queen won't be here. 
it'll be a very difficult job for Charles to take on. He'll take it on in relative old age himself. Our standing in the world will go down overnight, won't it? I think that it would be recognised that the Queen is absolutely irreplaceable, yes. There's no doubt about it, but equally each monarch is a totally different individual. And I think having the longest apprenticeship in history, what was it said in uh, The Madness of King George being Prince of Wales isn't a position, it's a predicament? Well, he's created a pretty impressive charitable portfolio, including his trust. So let's see what he makes of it. I think he would be extremely good because one thing the Queen did, and this was, I think, absolutely mm. pivotal at the very beginning of the Platinum Jubilee to say it was her wish that Camilla should be Queen Consort, something that was going to happen anyway, but could have been very controversial had it been left. But it was dealt with, and it dealt was, with very well, uh, as so much as Rich Fitzwilliams. Thank you for joining me on Talking Pints, and thank you for your thoughts. It's a pleasure. Okay, it's time for Barrage the Farage. You have sent your questions in. Let's have a go. One viewer asks, is the abolition of the monarchy inevitable once the Queen passes away? It's not inevitable, is it? No. No, it's not inevitable, but it may well take a bit of a knock and we may find that Australia and Canada no longer want the British monarch as head of state. There'll be changes, there'll be changes. But abolition to be replaced by what? President Blair or someone like that? I don't think so. Mick asks, are the Labour Party unelectable with Starmer at the wheel? Well, Mick, you know, we're in a very odd situation, aren't we? Confidence in both parties really sinking, I think, quite fast. The polls say, in relative terms, Labour at the moment would win more votes and more seats than the Conservatives. There's a long way to go, a long way to go. But I have to say, he's got no control over his party at all. And we've seen that on the RMT picket lines all over the country. Today, Ryan asks, if Rwanda fails, could we use British overseas territories to progress, to process the migrants? Well, there was talk of the Ascension Islands, but I think that's an awfully long way to fly people. Possibly we could. The Australians did a deal in the end with Nauru, as you know. Um, they're going to have to do something, but can they do anything all the while we stay part of the ECHR? I very, very much doubt it. Jeff asks, goodness me, should whips be banned in horse racing? Well, this is really out of left field. Um, no, I don't think they should be banned, but I think actually the Jockey Club are pretty strict about the way in which they are used, and that is right and appropriate. Finally, Dorothy asks, will Boris ever get Brexit done? Well, look, uh, Brexit needs to be completed, and you could sense with Ian Duncan Smith earlier, both he and I, passionate Brexiteers, we are frustrated that there's so many opportunities we could take from this and it's not been done. They're blaming the pandemic, but they're running out of time. Otherwise, the public will become dispirited with Brexit and a coalition government, if the Tories were to lose, would take us back into the single market or at least align rules. And that would be a tragedy, in my view. 